From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. When she opened her restaurant in Fitzroy, Australia, Saba Alamayo described the food as Ethiopian. But in 2020, as conflict consumed the Tigray region where her mother is from, Saba wanted to share the deeper story behind her family's recipes. In Tekabash and Saba, she takes us through the complexity of her mother's journey, including civil war, migration, divorce, and emigration. It's an extraordinary document of a daughter's love for her mother, and all of it is emotionally bound up with Tigray culture and food. Hi, Saba. Welcome to Good Food. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. In the book, you say that the concept of being Ethiopian is a constructed one. And you paraphrased author Chimananda Ngozi Adiche, who says the only authentic identity for the African is the tribe. We became Ethiopian through conquests. So tell us a bit about where Tigray is and how the culture is different from um, the rest of Ethiopia? So I don't want to overemphasize, it's not necessarily the differences, because there are some similarities in the same way that I guess you might find um, Americans might have a lot of similarities with Canadians or the Switzerland, like, you know, the ones that share the border with Germany might have a lot of similarities to the Germans on the other side and so on. So Tigray is located in the northern regions um, of Ethiopia. So it's in the furthest north, bordering with Eritrea. Now, the Eritreans are from the south, are also from the same actual tribe as, like, let's say, Tagaro, as together, but obviously there's a border now, so uh, half of us identify as uh, Ethiopian Tagaro, and then the other ones are from Eritrea. So there's that distinction. But what was really important and different that can be highlighted between, let's say, Tagaro and the rest of Ethiopia is historical context. So Tigray used to be the capital city back in the days of Abyssinia and the ancient uh, Aksumite kingdom also comes from that area there. So when we talk about Queen Sheba, Queen Sheba's birthplace or home place is Aksum, which is in the heart of Tigray. And then that dynasty kind of went all the way up to Yemen. So historically, there's that context. And then religiously, Ethiopia in general is about 40-60, so 40% Muslims and 60% Christians. And predominantly most of the Christians are Orthodox Christians. Um, however, in Tigray you get 98% um, Orthodox Christians and only 2% of other denominations, whether it be Catholics or Muslims. Now, that plays a role into the culinary experience, that plays a role into the cultural experience. So Orthodox Christians, generally speaking, do Lent about 200 plus um, days of the year in which they go vegan. So that heavily influences the cuisine that you're getting. And then also in Tigray, it's a little bit more drier as, as la- the land's a little bit more drier and a lot more mountainous. Now, again, that then changes the cuisine in terms of what people have access to and what they're kind of eating. So you can see a lot more heavy, like, legume-based and heavy, like, I guess, produce that can last the test of time because things like chickpea and things like that, they will ground that up and chickpea can last you the year without having to worry about it. And we don't have any water, as in it's landlocked completely. So as a result of that, you can see now that it doesn't have a seafood-based or um, any kind of fish dishes that really are a part of the basis of uh, Tigray cuisine, 
and then also you see that like teff um teff grains are a bit more um readily grown within um the north so as a result uh staple is very heavily in jeddah the book is such a an unusual document in terms of documenting your mother Tekabash who who lived through some pretty dramatic times her life was sort of outlined by external conflict and an ebb and flow from one country to another that has marked her life could you tell us a little bit about her and about living in Sudan as a part of the Tigray community Yeah, sure. So even though this story, I guess, uses my mother as the main protagonist, and it's my mother's story that I'm talking about, unfortunately or fortunately, this um, it's a very common story thread line. Uh, in terms of my mother, wasn't one of the only ones that had escaped through that route when they left uh, during the civil war between the communist government at that time, predominantly led by TPLF back in um, those days. When she left, there was hordes of these young people that had been leaving in droves from Tigray. So there was an influx of these 17, 18, 19-year-olds and quite young people that found themselves in a strange city. And, and when I say strange, in terms of for them, culturally, it was a really shocking city to be in because it practiced Sharia law. Most of them had never been exposed to anyone outside of Tigray. They were kind of very sheltered, I guess, kids is what I would call them as, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, that are just all of a sudden have found themselves in a new city, not through by choice, and they were struggling a lot culturally with what was going on in that city, whether it be the Sharia laws that they were experiencing or the lack of, like, familial um, support. And given that we're such a communal society, all of a sudden they were dislodged. Yes, yeah, so your mom is 17. She finds herself in Khartoum, And very soon after arriving, she becomes a housemaid in a Sudanese household, and she's expected to cook, but she's never cooked before. So it's so fascinating to me that the woman who ended up being your touchstone of Tigray culture through her cuisine first starts to actually cook a type of food that is not her own food. Yes. So a lot of the stuff that she learned, um, and also like my mum was in a slightly different position in that she's the youngest in her household. So normally by her age, she should have learned to cook and she should have learned to cook most of the Tigrayan dishes. But being um, that she was the youngest of the house, by the time she was born, basically her brothers had already been married and therefore there were sister-in-laws in the house that were already taking on the domestic duties. So she learns initially to cook um, Sudanese food. So that was generally the job that most Tagaro refugees did, uh, was usually housemaids, cleaners, like gate men, and sometimes like drivers for Sudanese households. So when she was doing that, she got taught that. And then after that, every time she, they wanted to cook, so on their days off and so on, they would say, okay, let's cook this Tigrayan dish or let's do this. Like all the younger women would go to the older women asking them how to make this, how to make that. And the older women that were there would be teaching them. So she didn't have the privilege, I guess, of learning it through um, her mother or through her older sisters, which would have been the natural progression, but rather from all these other older women mentors in Khartoum that were kind of taking on the younger females as their own or as their, their younger siblings or as their daughters, depending on how old they were. Are there any recipes in the book that... Um 
that are from this time of your mother's life that that sort of integrate Sudanese ideas into the Tigrayan? Yeah. So the okra and lamb dish, the bamia, is purely a Sudanese dish. It's not a dish eaten at all um, in Tigray. In fact, I think when uh, you cook it for Tagada people, they find the, the slimy nature of okra a little bit uncomfortable usually when they're not exposed. But what they do is they end up doing it with a twist of Tigrayan rice. So adding specific types of chilies and so on is something that they do but is not done um, in Sudanese cuisine. So Sudanese um, cuisine, generally speaking, doesn't really use a lot of chilli and a lot of that kind of spicy flavours. It tends to mimic a bit more that Middle Eastern style of cuisine, so like a lot of the cumins, but not so much chilli and pepper. When it comes to Tigrayan cuisine, what is its backbone it's backbone, to be honest, are three very key ingredients. So one is berbera or dilukh sometimes we use. So berbera is, to call it chili is to simplify it too much because it's got over about 15 to, to 20 spices um, placed in it. So they dry up some chili, some garlic, some cumin. You roast some of this stuff as well before you um, dry it up. Some ginger, they've got multiple spices in it then each household has their own combination of these spices and they take it to the local mill and then you grind it up. So even though when you look at it, you might just be looking at, when you look at berbera, you might just see, oh, is this just chilli powder? But it's not chilli powder because it's really infused with a lot of um, flavours and a lot of like spices in it to make it like a perfect blend of balance in there. Another key element that you'll see is tasmi, which is spiced butter. Again, it's butter, but then again, they put all these spices in it and then they drain all the spices away and then allow it to solidify. So it becomes like this, um, yeah, spice ghee that you can use for dishes. And then another uh, key ingredient is teff, uh, which is like the grain that we use. So the super grain that they talk about, one of the ancient grains, this teff is then used as the staple starch for all of our food. Uh, we ferment it. So like a sourdough bread mix, we ferment it and then we do a flat bread with it and that becomes the utensil slash your starch to eat every single thing with. You say chickpeas are a superstar ingredient and you use them in such interesting ways, often in powdered form. Can you describe how it's used? So, so the, the, to make the powder, they will roast chickpeas. They will add berbera to it. They will then add onions and all of these. So almost everything's already balanced with it. Then they grind it up. So what you end up with is like an orange-looking um, powder. That powder, if it's already not started well, so if that powder is not correct already, that means no matter how you cook that shiro dish, it will always be off. So that powder already, that powder mixture has to be perfectly on point. Um, and also because of lack of refrigeration, that powder tends to last then for years. And this is what families kind of use as the, so just be always sitting in the house. So every household always will have that. So if you're out of groceries, you're out of anything, it's kind of like our, I guess Australian household would have the, the baked beans on toast or the, the quick spaghetti for the Italians. Like it's that for us. It's the basic tenant of if there's nothing in the house, your mother will find that and that is what she will cook. But it's still considered something quite delicious and something that we like. Even when there is something, people can say, oh, I want shiro today. And how is it prepared? How is this um, seasoned chickpea flour transformed? Uh, like bechamel, bechamel sauce would be the way I would describe it. So then after that, you've got the chickpea um, powder. Then you still do 
again, we love onions and everything. So then, then you do your onion, your sautéing of your onions and so on. Uh, you might put a little bit more, like, you know, salt and so on, and then you put water in it, so you boil the water, and then just so that it doesn't clump up, just like bechamel sauce, you would then put little bits, little bits, little bits of the um, powder while you're still, like, whisking it to ensure that you then get this consistency. So... The consistency of it for Western cuisine or like how Western people would refer to it is like soup. But for us, we don't use it as soup. We use it as like a dip that we eat in Jeddah with. So you do that. Mm, yeah, it's almost like a porridge. Yeah, it's like that. But you just you definitely have to whisk it um, a lot to ensure that it doesn't clump up together. Well, thank you so much, Saba. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. All right. Thank you so much. That was Saba Alamayo sharing her and her mother's story of their journey from Ethiopia to Australia through the lens of food. Her book is Tekabash and Saba. And we've got a recipe for the shiro powder and shiro stew that Saba mentioned on our website. That's at kcrw.com slash good food. Coming up. When a cooking show contestant landed a coveted slot on a competition show, the producers told him to B-Y-O-B. That's bring your own butter. We get a glimpse of what real life is really like for food reality show contestants. Next. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. If you think that appearing on a competitive food reality show is an automatic recipe for success, well, think again. For every Kristen Kish, who won season 10 of Top Chef and is now taking over from Padma Lakshmi as host of the show, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of hungry hopefuls who struggle to leverage their time on a reality show into a sustainable career boost. As journalist Victoria Namkung points out, Appearing on one of these food TV shows isn't typically a recipe for career success. So what happens when the stage lights go dark and cameras turn off? Hi, Victoria. Hi, Evan. Thanks so much for having me. So how does it work for cooking show contestants? Are they paid to be on these shows? You know, I was really surprised to find out they are not paid A lot of times they have to even ship some of their own equipment. One pastry chef mentioned having to send his own butter ahead of time, which I was really surprised by. And a lot of times they only earn income if they're the actual winner, if there's a cash prize. Um, We know some shows in the UK, like the Great British Baking Show, they don't even have a cash prize. People are just doing it for the accolade or for their own, I guess, success. But here in the U.S., you know, some of the shows do offer pretty hefty cash prizes. But for all the rest of the contestants, they may have worked just as hard, but they're not earning any money and certainly not any royalties. I find that 
just unbelievably sad and also just shocked to hear about the guy and his butter. Yes, <laughs> agree. And that was during the pandemic. So it was very challenging for him to get all of his equipment there. Wow. Yeah, and they, you know, a lot of these productions do have huge budgets. If you look at some of the glossier shows, you'll see these giant refrigerators, you know, packed to the brim with gorgeous looking food. And unfortunately, we've also learned a lot of that goes to waste in many cases. But it seems strange that the onus should be on the contestant who's not necessarily wealthy or famous. So yeah, that was a real big surprise to me. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's really really surprising that they don't even make scale. Right. And a lot of the times they're working 12, 14 hour days. So it's not like they're just popping in to do a quick hour or two. You know, it's really a grueling schedule. And a lot of times they're isolated from their families and friends. How many former cooking show contestants did you speak to for your story in The Guardian? I spoke to uh, four and I ended up using three of them for the story. Some people are uncomfortable talking about their experience. Some people who had a more negative experience didn't necessarily want to talk about it in case they want to try to be on a different show. Um, But they all had varying experiences. But the one commonality they had was to stress to me that these shows are entertainment shows, not necessarily cooking shows. But did they realize that going in that it was entertainment or were they surprised by what it actually was? Yeah, I would say it was a mix of both. I think somebody going on a show in more recent years is quite familiar that there is quite a bit of production involved and that they're going to try to maybe follow the stories that are more high stakes or more interesting or have some drama attached to them. But some chefs I spoke with just were contacted about going on the show and that were so naive to the process. They didn't even realize there would be cameras in their faces. I think they believed the cameras were somewhere in a different part of the set. Um, so it, a lot of it is learning on the go as soon as you're there. Wow. I want to bring in one of the contestants you spoke to, Derek Corsino. In his real life, Derek is the high school culinary teacher at Healdsburg High School in Northern California. And he'd been on a few shows before he was cast for season seven of Spring Baking Championship on the Food Network. I asked Derek to tell us about the process for how he got cast in the series when they filmed in 2020. I was cast with two weeks notice. And I kind of had a a little more of a unique kind of look because a a prior student of mine from a a university I taught at in Washington, D.C. and Virginia happened to be on the same season. So I kind of knew when he was cast, and he was cast six months prior. So likely what happened, and I never got the full story, is I replaced somebody who who got COVID or got cold feet at the last second, uh, and I was the... I was the Phil guy. I was the guy who was on somebody's Rolodex uh, who had done stuff before. I had gotten a call every season prior. It was always, oh, we like you, but not this time, not this time. I finally, after like the fourth season, got somebody to kind of give me a little bit of a response. They're like, well, we have a problem with you, with your casting. I was like, what was the problem? It's like, you're too well-rounded. I knew bread and I knew pastry. I can make you a mousse. I can make you chocolates and all of that which doesn't always translate to television well when they're looking for at least a little bit of drama. Uh, they want things to go wrong every once in a while. 
Not to say things didn't go wrong on the shoot uh, with spring baking. They went wrong. I think I still stand as the only competitor on spring baking championship to come in last place but not go home on an episode. (laughs) So how far did you end up going on that show? I was on every episode, um, all the way down to the end. And I understand that some online fans thought that you were robbed. (laughs) I mean, it's good to have fans uh, at the end of the day. And it it was interesting, you know, as the show kind of ended uh, and people saw me in public or found me on social media, they'd reach out and they'd give their opinion. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's the judges and the producers who who pick a winner. Uh, I'll never forget the first show I ever did. Um, we were just kind of getting uh, a lay of the land. The executive producer was kind of going over what the rules are going to be, what the timeline was. And she, she said a statement that stuck with me ever since that we want you guys to make great cakes. This was a, a cake show. We want you to make great cakes. We want you to do well. We're going to give you every resource that we can. But at the end of the day, this is a television show. And I always thought that was very telling. Uh, and every time, whether I win or I don't win or, or whatever I do in front of a camera, I come back to that statement of we're making a television show. This is entertainment at the end of the day. And perhaps what I did wasn't exactly what the judges and the executive producers wanted. I mean, you know when you do a bad job. My second episode I ever did on Food Network, uh, my cake broke. I knew I did not deserve to win. Uh, but when you do a really good job and people can see it, it's, it's a hard loss. Victoria, this sentiment is something that you cover in your piece for The Guardian. You write about the difference between being a good chef with all the skills that this requires and being good at being on TV, which are two very different things. Yeah, one of the experts I spoke to was was saying how, you know, being on TV can really help you amplify your story, like if you have an amazing background, but it can't really amplify your skill. So those of us who are watching at home, you know, we're not experts, so we may not know if someone is cooking correctly or or in a certain tradition. Um, we're just, you know, we might really like their personality. We might think they're funny. We might think they're charming or captivating. So a lot of times people who become really big TV food stars are people who are really good at being on, you know, television. So if you don't have that charisma, then a TV competition show might not be right for you. So interesting. Media has really changed in the past few years. Um, Social media platforms seem to be everything. I mean, you see food stars and culinary influencers being minted every day on social media. What role do you think food TV still has in this new landscape where people can rack up millions of followers on YouTube and TikTok and they can land book and sponsorship deals based on that? That's so true. You know, one... um TV production person I spoke with noted that they had brought a TikTok star on and that person was not good at being on television. They were really good at doing TikToks, but it didn't translate. And the same exact way, just because someone's good on television doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be the perfect person for TikTok. So I think television, as time passes, is becoming less important. I still think YouTube And TikTok are probably the top platforms for people wanting to break into this space or wanting to try to, you know, maybe they don't want to go to culinary school, but they're just 
talented in some way on their own at translating recipes and short little fun videos about cooking and trends and things like that. However, there's no guarantee that TikTok will stay relevant forever. So I think it's probably still good for people to keep their eggs in a few different baskets, if you don't mind the food pun. That is certainly true. Well, thank you so much, Victoria. It was such an interesting article. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. Thank you for having me. That was journalist Victoria Namkung, who wrote a story for The Guardian about the aftermath of appearing on competitive food cooking shows. We also heard from contestant Derek Corsino. You'll find a link to Victoria's story on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. When you see a product on a grocery store shelf labeled plant butter made with olive oil, complete with the drawing of a leafy olive branch, you probably expect that product to be, well, made with olive oil. But if you bother to look at the nutritional information on the back, you might make a discovery. The spread contains barely any olive oil at all, and its primary ingredient is a blend of processed palm and canola oils. The problem, of course, is that most of us don't look at these nutritional labels, and that is exactly what processed food companies are counting on. This is where Long Island lawyer Spencer Sheehan comes in. From 2020 to 2023, he's filed at least 500 lawsuits, many against food producers, arguing that their packaging is deceptive. Writer Sarah Larson profiled him in The New Yorker. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Evan. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. So tell us about Spencer Sheehan. He specializes in consumer protection class action suits, mostly in the packaged food area. What products has he filed lawsuits against? Where to even begin? Uh, Fireball cinnamon whiskey, hint of lime Tostitos, many smoked almonds that say they were produced in a smokehouse, many dozens of vanilla claims in ice cream and yogurt and other products, margarine. (laughs) I walked through a supermarket with him once and he had something to say about just about every product. So he's he's filed around 500 food packaging lawsuits. How successful have they generally been? Well, that depends on your definition of successful. Many of them are settled out of court. I think the first step in a success is if a judge doesn't dismiss it outright, because that means that there's enough to go on for the case to proceed. And then it usually gets into some gray area where the company is trying to assert its righteousness and Spencer Sheehan is trying to say they were deceptive, it often ends up settling out of court. So that would mean that there's a class settlement for all the people in the class and he gets, you know, a decent percentage of that recovery. They rarely, if ever, go to trial. So so one imagines that he is seeking monetary damages from each lawsuit. Yes. If he wins... 
who gets the money and how much money are we talking about? Is it a decent amount of money for each individual member of the case? Usually it's a fairly trivial amount of money for each person in the case because the product itself doesn't cost much. You know, it can be a dollar, $15, something like that, depending on what the thing is, like a pack of seltzer or a can of soda. Usually the named plaintiff gets a few thousand dollars, is my impression. There's a lead plaintiff kind of a person. And then Spencer Sheehan himself, if the case settles for a lot of money, gets, you know, maybe tens of thousands or who knows. But uh, the other thing that complicates it is that sometimes these cases are combined, like multiple lawyers will be suing for the same thing at once. So then there will be a multi-million dollar reward, and then that's divided in, in all kinds of ways. Is he considered a, nu- a nuisance attorney by judges? Yes. <laughs> He's considered a nuisance definitely by food companies and some judges. There are few, have been a few judges who have been not sanctioning him, but sort of sternly warning him that he needs to knock it off. One judge asked for a list of all of his cases and all of their outcomes. You know, I have to say that when I, when I read his story, the story that you wrote, part of me feels like all of these large companies have huge amounts of lobbyists that represent yeah. their interests. And the problem with we eaters is that we have very few lobbyists representing <laughs> our interests. <laughs> yes. So let's let's talk about a few of the cases. One of the recent lawsuits got a fair bit of attention. You mentioned it, Blue Diamond and their Smokehouse Almonds, which, you know, just the, the brand Smokehouse Almonds, you know, gives us some sort of expectation, right? Yeah, it you know creates an image in your mind, and you might imagine a smokehouse. But as he muttered to me when we were discussing this, they never owned a smokehouse, and yet they decided to call them smokehouse. I don't know the details of whether or not they've owned a smokehouse, but he sued them many times, and according to him, has won some of the cases and lost some, and some are pending. So... It's really hard for me to imagine what it would be like to spend several hours with um, Spencer Sheehan. (laughs) Can you, have you ever sat down and eaten with him? Yes. We have eaten uh, fruit and pizza together on multiple occasions, yeah. I spent a couple days uh, just kind of following him around in Great Neck, and um, then we went to a supermarket together. You know, he's a very energetic, earnest and kind of positive person most of the time. And I happen to think that most things he says are entertaining and highly quotable. So when I was spending time with him, I was just going, you know, how am I going to choose what not to put in? But um, there are certainly people who see him as sort of a, a nuisance, as you said. But it's hard to spend time with him and not come away with the feeling that he really does believe in at least much of what he's doing. He's very passionate about it. Hearing about um, this man who has such a passion for um, revealing fraud or obfuscation in food packaging on our behalf, I would imagine that he shops at farmer's markets and eats a very, (laughs) um, quote, natural foods-based diet. How how right am I? Um, Not right. He, 
There's another thing that I find kind of charming about him is that um, he eats pizza for dinner a lot of the time. He doesn't cook and he buys, you know, cut fruit at a convenience store that he eats. And he, you know, he sued 7-Eleven brand products for various labeling issues. But according to him, he gets uh, coffee at 7-Eleven every morning. And I said, but didn't you sue them? And he said, yeah, and when I'm there, I can check out you know, what they have on the shelves and see <laughs> what's going on. So um, no, he's not a purist. He, it's, it's almost intellectual for him, I think. Yeah, I, I really think that I actually disagree with you in that I believe that most American consumers do expect that if something says minty, that there be mint. And if something Mm -hmm. says lemony, there be lemon juice. Um, I think most people are completely unaware of the fabricated flavors and aromas that inhabit almost all ultra-processed food. Well, that's only natural, you know? I mean, of course, the difference between a flavor and an ingredient can almost seem like a philosophical one, you know. <laughs> I love that. That's so true. <laughs> but it, of course we should see, you know, if we look at a box or a jar of something and it has a food word on it, that we expect that food be in the box or the jar. Yeah, Not I, that it be a suggestion from a chemical factory in New Jersey. Exactly. I kind of love the idea that he is out there tilting at windmills for us. Yeah, <laughs> I do too. <laughs> it's kind of charming. And I, I actually forgot earlier when you asked me about what success is in these cases, a very important thing, which is that success is also changing the labeling. And a lot of times labels do get changed or adjusted to more accurately reflect what's actually in the package. And even in the course sometimes of you know the slow process of things going through the court system, the labels will change. Like that um, country crock made with olive oil case, the label changed during the course of the trial, which I mean the course of the case, which I think is still going on from made with olive oil to with olive oil or something like that. So, you know, a small change, but... And a lemon seltzer might say lemon flavored or this kind of thing. It's like going to, from star billing to becoming a character actor. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for this article. We loved it. Oh, thank you. It was, it was fun to work on. And I think it's kind of fun to think about. And if it makes us more aware of what we're eating, that's a good thing. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> thank you. That was writer Sarah Larson. Last year, she profiled lawyer Spencer Sheehan in The New Yorker. You'll find a link to her story about the legal skirmishes surrounding food packaging at our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. In a minute, restaurant prices are rising, but as my next guest points out, it's a miracle that restaurants aren't charging more than they already do. Find out why next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Dry-aged strip loin with tomato and sorrel. It's just one dish on a restaurant menu. But the story of how all those ingredients end up on the plate is an epic tale. 
In his latest book, author Andrew Friedman goes behind the scenes at Johnny Clark and Beverly Kim's restaurant in Chicago, where he watches the chefs conceive of the dish and then painstakingly follows the ingredients from farm to table. And just a brief trigger warning here. Part of our behind-the-scenes look extends to a slaughterhouse if you want to fast-forward. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Evan. Great to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. So, in the book, after a brief description of the ballet of the past and the expediter, you immediately head to the kill floor of Slagle Family Farms, a fifth-generation rancher who provides the loin to the restaurant. For us meat eaters, what do we owe the people who work these kinds of operations? It, it's, it's pretty gruesome work. I mean, uh, to, to see an animal, you know, hit between the eyes with a stun gun and immediately, you know, this, this huge multi-hundred-pound beast drop to the floor... Uh, and then to see it bled out uh, and then flayed and then started on its way to eventually butchery and, and aging. Um, but to see that happen from the live state is really quite something. And uh, I, I personally believe and have long believed that, you know, this is something if you do, if you do enjoy eating meat or poultry or whatever it is, I don't think you should turn away from that. But I think what we owe these people is that they do some pretty unpleasant work. They do it with dignity and they do it um, even for the animals. The animals are, are treated very well and, and they go about it in a very professional way. But it's something that I dare say most people would not you know, have, have the stomach to do. We should say that this particular operation raises these animals. So this isn't the first time they're encountering them on the kill floor. They have actually taken care of them, fed them, let them roam on pasture. And often on the same property uh, on which they live. You know, even Lewis John Slagle, who's, who's, as you say, in the fifth generation of the family running this farm, he raises some of uh, the animals himself. And the pen and the feeding area and all of that is in the front part of his property. You actually drive past it to get to his house. And... At the plant, not only the family and their workers um, are doing the job of um, harvesting the meat, but there is also a USDA inspector on site, and Slagle has to make accommodations for that inspector. Yeah, this was actually something I did not know, uh, but every meat uh, processing facility uh, in this country has a dedicated uh, USDA inspector, uh, they have to make available to the inspector an office. Uh, they have to make available a functioning landline telephone. Um, this is all at the expense of the business. And the inspector is the guardian of this stamp, which is the stamp that they uh, press into uh, meat that's been approved uh, for selling and shipping in the United States. And without that stamp, you you can't do business. And, um, you know, A, it's interesting to me that that's all at the expense of the individual businesses. Slagle actually has to have two. They have one uh, in the building where the kill floor is located. Uh, and then they have another inspector in the packaging facility. So they have to provide all those things times two. And it, to me, just goes to 
you know, for anybody who thinks restaurant meals are expensive, there are not only is there all the labor you see in this book funneling, you know, into each individual dish, but there are these things you would just never think of that these very, you know, very often small purveyors have to pay for out of pocket. And this was one of them. It was just fascinating to me. And then, you know, the the the, the interesting footnote to the footnote is if, say, you have an inspector who's a chronic oversleeper and um, you have, you know, you can't start until an hour or two after you plan to on a given day, uh, you have to wait for that person to be present. So you may be paying hourly employees, uh, 10 of them to stand around until the inspector shows up on a given day, that kind of thing. So, you know, as a lot of us have come to realize in the last few years, restaurant food probably should be even more expensive than it is. Um, although that sounds like a horrible thought to all of us. So I'm um, just circling back to this dish, a dry aged strip loin with tomato and sorrel. Let's go to the tomato now. What variety is the tomato in the dish? Where do they come from? And how long did it take for the tomato to get from seed to plate? for this particular tomato served in late July. Yeah, this was a thing that I actually loved uh, going in reverse for uh, because the way I worked on the book is I spent a week at the restaurant in July of late July of 2021. And then about two and a half weeks later, I came back to the Chicago area, got a rental car and went to all of the farms. So in the dish, you, ha- you have a, a, a slice, about four ounces of this dry-aged strip loin from Slagle. And then there is a half of a partially dehydrated brandywine tomato, which in the book I describe as a baseball of a tomato. I mean, this is in the peak tomato season. And it was these really big tomatoes. They were uh, halved uh, basically across what I think of as the equator. And then gently dehydrated, not not sun-dried or dehydrated to the point of being completely dried out, but just enough to kind of concentrate the flavor, get a little bit of the liquid out. And that is placed alongside the strip loin on the plate. And then that is covered with a red wine reduction with a lot of herbs in it. And then the whole sorrel leaves go on top. So that tomato started its life back in the winter. It actually started in uh, the greenhouse where they they start the the calendar year growing. And then as they started to germinate and grow into small stalks, those were then transferred into the ground. And this all took place at Nichols Farm and Orchards, which is about 50 miles north of Chicago in Marengo, Illinois. But those tomatoes that they were using in that dish at Wherewithal in late July, those would have gone into the ground in the early spring, uh, maybe late April, early May. And so it's several months of growing for that one tomato. And then at that time of year, they're picked um, maybe a day or two before they find their way to the restaurants because business is so brisk. They don't really have the luxury of storing a lot of things off the vine or in the warehouse. And... Um, yeah, but that's that's its story. It has a, a multi-month process from seed uh, to finished tomato. You actually rode shotgun on a delivery route for Nichols Farm with Mark Hoffmeister. And when he drops you off, you asked him if he could ever have been an office guy. Like, what is it about the industry 
that attracts people like him who are, in your words, incompatible with conventional professional careers? First of all, the, the, the day I spent with this guy, with Mark Hoffmeister, as you say, I just got lucky. He was a very amusing guy, super intelligent, quick-witted guy. You know, he's had a lot of different jobs in his career. And his job is, is to navigate the challenges of parking a huge truck in a very busy city like Chicago, which is not set up for that to happen. And his entire day is a huge improvisation, and it was very exciting. It was really impressive to watch him work. And at some point, I started to see a correlation between him and and even some of the farmers in this book. They're just, these are people who who never really thought they were going to be in a kind of a suit and tie cubicle office situation. Uh, They don't like that level of structure. They don't like that level of rules. They don't like having to stifle their personalities in in the name of HR mandates. And I think a lot of people like that end up in kitchens. And I came to realize a lot of people like that also end up in farms. And some of them end up driving the trucks for these farms. And he said something to me while we were together. He mentioned to me that, you know, some of his friends kind of look down on on the work that he does. And that made, that really does make me sad because I was talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, there's only one person in this book that has a job that I don't think there's a reasonable chance I could probably do myself. And it's Mark. (laughs) I do not believe that I could handle the stresses of delivering to restaurants in the middle of a busy city like a Chicago or New York or a Los Angeles. It is an entire day of, of being in places you're not supposed to be doing things you're not supposed to do by the letter of the law. And the way these guys manage to do it and get around it or get the sympathy of parking enforcement officers or whoever they need to is something to watch. All while, I'm sure, being extremely social and chatty and telling jokes um, with the receiving people at the restaurants at every place he drops off. Absolutely. I think I describe him as, an, as a natural kibitzer in the book. Um, yeah. And that he is. he is. He is clearly very well liked by people. Our first restaurant stop was around 6 a.m., I think. And I, I was still in the truck, but I watched him get into a conversation with the lone cook who was at the restaurant that we dropped off at at that hour. Um, and then with me the whole day, and this is something also, as you know, you used to be in restaurants, you know, the whole day in the truck, we were just chattering away. You know, jokes, our life stories, movies, um, music, everything. And, and that is very similar to the way time passes during the prep day in a kitchen. So interesting. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was writer and podcaster Andrew Friedman. He follows the ingredients and those responsible for transforming them in his latest book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food. If you're one of those people who's been complaining about restaurant prices lately, perhaps this is a book for you. The Market Report is on deck, and that means citrus. Stay with us. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. It's that time when we head to the market to find out what's in peak season this week in Southern California. 
This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. It has been another rainy week in Southern California, but citrus continues to shine at the markets. I'm in Santa Monica this morning with Damon Gordon, executive chef at Fig at the Fairmont Hotel, which is not even two blocks away from where we're standing right now. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So we have so much citrus to choose from. What is catching your eye today? You know, this is the perfect time for citrus season, but I think for me, the best one is Maya lemon. It's such a unique ingredient. Uh, I love citrus in, in anything anyway. It's a big part of my um, kind of taste profile, uh, but Maya lemon, because it's so significant and uh, individual on the flavorings of it and many different ways that, to use it. Talk to us a little bit about the flavor of the Meyer lemon. It used to be thought that the fruit was actually a cross between a lemon and either a mandarin or an orange, but it's actually a pomelo and mandarin hybrid that has been crossed with a citron, and it has this really interesting flavor. It does. So the skin, you'll see some of the skin on Meyer lemon has that real nice orange tinge to it. The skin is a lot thinner. It's a lot more, you could even eat the skin without even cooking it. It's not super sweet, so it's not like biting into a mandarin. It still has that acidity, but it's probably a bit more, I would say, tart than pure acid. So I think the balance between the two is really good. And visually, it looks great as well, but the flavor profile is very unique. So how do you use it on the plate? I love to use zest. Uh, I think seasoning, especially with fish, uh, zest is great when you're doing something raw. Uh, we have a pokey dish that we use. Um, but I'm actually putting on the menu because artichokes are now into season. Uh, we're going to do a, a roasted wild halibut with an artichoke barrigal. So we can cook it white wine, carrots, garlic, shallots. And then we're going to make a preserved my lemon blanc. So um, we're going to put them in salt for probably about four or five days. Um, so again, you can just bite into them after you put them in, in salt. Um, and then we'll put that through the beurre blanc. So you've got the a little sweetness, a little saltiness now, and the acidities, which will balance against the slightly bitterness of the artichokes. When you put them in the salt, are you putting them in whole? Yes, it's a very traditional way of preserving obviously they did in the Middle East for many many years uh, what you do is you just dock the skin so you just with the point of your knife you put that in there so it allows some of the salt to go in you just pack them in salt and then you leave them in there minimum four to five days I mean you can leave them in there a lot longer uh, but four or five days and what happens is that it starts to break down some of the the oils and and the skin and obviously with my lemon being a very more um, thinner skin and edible Literally, you can just peel the skin and you could eat it. So when you're using it in the Bourbon Blanc, are you using just the, the preserved skin or the flesh too? We'll use the flesh. So what we'll do is we'll peel the lemon and then we'll lightly dice that. And then what we'll do is we'll use some of the juice and then some of the, the pulp. What we'll do is we'll make the segments and we'll put that through there too. That sounds incredible. I want to go back to the prep on the artichoke that you described too. Can you tell us what that word was again? An artichoke what? Barrigol. So barrigol is a very traditional way, very classic French way of cooking artichokes. Um, obviously you peel the artichokes um, and then you cook them with white wine, shallots, garlic, carrot, uh, bay leaf thyme, and you braise that in some white wine. Um, and then you actually use the garnish to, to put on the plate. So you cut the shallots and carrots are a beautiful bias and so you use that as part of the the garnish on the plate very very classic dish but with a twist now you know using some my lemon to it at times you can serve them cold um, but obviously we'll serve it warm sit the roasted halibut on it and so it's a mix of 
you know, old school and new school. Thank you so much, Damon. Of course. You're welcome. That was Damon Gordon, executive chef at FIG, inside the Fairmont Miramar Hotel and Bungalows. It's right at the corner of Wilshire and Ocean in Santa Monica. One of our star citrus growers at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market is Laura Ramirez, who brings a bunch of citrus and avocados from Redlands in San Bernardino County. She is the farmer, the lone daughter behind JJ's Lone Daughter Ranch. Hi, Laura. How are you today? I'm good, Laura. So I was just talking with Chef Damon about Meyer lemons, and yours are always so good. What makes your Meyer lemons special? I think what makes them special is our trees are really old. They're like little grandpa trees that produce really great fruit, and they're always very yellow. I only bring my fruit ripe, and they have a soft skin, which I love, and I love to make um, lemon drops. They make the best lemon drops, and they're a little bit sweeter lemon than the Eureka lemon. What's your lemon drop recipe, Laura? Oh, my goodness. A lot of vodka, a little bit of lemon, and... I know I, I know I can always rely on you for a good <laughs> cocktail recipe. So speaking of ripeness, I want to quickly turn to limes because I think most people, when they go to the grocery store, they see a lime. It is green. We have been taught that limes are green. No, what no, no, what no. color are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be yellow. You know, everybody picks these green limes at the store and they don't have any juice. They're, they're dry, so dry. I always say that the way to pick out a lime is to make sure that it's got a smooth skin on it and it's yellow and it's going to be the juiciest thing you've ever had. I mean, it, there's nothing that compares. I mean, a, a margarita with that? No, there you go. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> and they're seasonal, right? Limes shouldn't be in season no, all year long. No, not all year long, you know. They just have them at the grocery store green because they can differentiate between the lime and a lemon. If, you know, here, even at my stand, people confuse it. What is this? What is this? You know, I always say it's the best Jeopardy question. What color is a ripe lime? <laughs> it is yellow. <laughs> so let's turn to the bigger fruits on your table. You have something pretty special. It's called a Valentine Pomelo. What is that? Ooh, I love this. I always say it looks like it's it's an Oro Blanco and a blood orange that's kissed, and it's so delicious, but it's really not that. It's like a dancy tangerine and a ruby blood orange that were mixed together, and then with a low-acid grapefruit. So it is beautiful, and when you see it cut, it looks like it's tie-dyed. It's got these beautiful colors and the vesicles look really great and plump and big and really great. So it's low acid. So that means that it's not going to be tart. It's just going to be deliciously sweet. And the reason it's called Valentine, is that because it ripens around Valentine's Day or because of the color? Well, coincidentally, it does ripen right at Valentine's Day, and it is very red. And when you cut it, it looks like a heart when you cut it inside. So it's really pretty. And give us one more of your favorites this time of year, Laura. How many varieties do you grow? Well, in the avocado area, I grow uh, 26, so they can be ripe all year through. And citrus-wise, I have quite a few citrus varieties. I have like five varieties of blood orange and different varieties of lemons and all kinds of different unique things at my stand. I love the tangelos right now. Tangelo is a tangerine and a grapefruit mix. It's so good. It's just got the right amount of sweetness and the right amount of tartness and it's just great. And is that one that you can peel or do you slice that one up and eat it in wedges? Well, either way, speaking of eating it whole, you you need to try the mandarin quats that I have at the stand. Oh, those are the best. It's my favorite of all the quats. It's a mandarin and a 
and a kumquat mixed together. The peel is delicious, and you it's sliced thin in a salad. It's so great. Yeah, no, those are incredible. Well, thank you so much, Laura. It's always so fun to talk to you. Always lovely talking to you, giving you cocktail recipes. <laughs> That was Laura Ramirez of JJ's Lone Daughter Ranch. She comes down to the Wednesday and Saturday Farmer's Market in Santa Monica and the Sunday Hollywood Farmer's Market. From Redlands, for the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Hope Brush and Nick Lamponi. And a special thanks to Laura Kondorajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. I love to make a citrus olive oil cake. It's equally good made with lemons or oranges. Also, you should definitely grind up some lemon and orange zest with sugar to keep in the pantry. It's so good. And make sure you're subscribed to the Good Food Newsletter so that you get my weekly recipe links. Just go to kcrw.com slash goodfood and click on newsletter. I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Good Food. Good Food.